Are you satisfied with your life? I mean, really satisfied. In the deep places of who you are, are you truly, truly satisfied? The great philosopher, theologian, and poet, Mick Jagger, he said it this way, I can't get no satisfaction. And he tried. He tried, and he tried, and he tried, but he could not get no satisfaction. But what about us? That's why we asked the poll today. On a scale of one to five, how satisfied are you with your life? Five being I'm absolutely satisfied, one being I'm not satisfied at all. What are the results, Sam? Somewhere in the middle. A few down there, a little bit down there with no satisfaction at all. A little bit of a handful completely satisfied. A lot of us right there in the middle. Wouldn't it have been great if it was just fives? Everyone across the board, fives. It would have been a pretty short sermon, huh? We just pray and go home. We're all right where we need to be, but we're not. And we know that. And if it was all fives, this sermon would have turned into a sermon on lying just like that, just so you know. Because we know that we're not there. We know that we're not. And here's what happens, friends. When we're unsatisfied on the inside, what we start to do is we start to look around at the world around us. Are other people satisfied? Because sometimes it seems like they are. And what is it that is making them so satisfied? And we kind of look at them and we just think, I want their life. I want what they have. And we just get jealous and envious on the inside. Sometimes inside, we can be like this picture of this little girl right here. She's kind of frustrated, just looking at everything in life. Well, let's look at the whole picture. Yeah, right there. I want her life. Look at her just all up in his business. That swoopy hair, that dreamy hair. That could be mine. I want that life. That's the kind of thing that happens in us when we get out on social media and Facebook, Twitter, you name it. We start seeing pictures of people's lives out there. And that thing in us, inside, we start saying, wow, wouldn't that be nice? How in the world do they afford that? How in the world do they have time for that? Who's got time for that? Inside we say, I'm sure they're not as happy as they look. Their kids aren't always well-behaved like that. I know they can't be. How, how much time are they even spending at the gym to get a body like that? Because we want their life. There's something about their life that we want. And friends, this is a universal problem. Everyone in the world deals with this. But I want to say today that I think actually sometimes if you're a follower of Jesus, you take God seriously with your life, sometimes I think it can even be a bigger problem for us, because here's what we think. Deep underneath, inside, we just think, I'm trying to follow God with my life. Shouldn't he be helping me be satisfied? If God's in my life, why am I so unsatisfied? Shouldn't he be helping me? And here's what also seems hard for us, is when we seem unsatisfied and we start to look at people that do seem satisfied, sometimes in our mind we think it's the wrong people that are winning. It's the wrong people that seem like they are so satisfied. And we come to that place in life where we're asking this question. 
If God is so good, if God is so good, why am I so unsatisfied? Can we even ask that question in church? I mean, I mean, doesn't that seem really unspiritual? Almost maybe even a little bit disrespectful to God? Well, we're gonna look at that question today and we're gonna look at that question through the lens of Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is a psalm written by a man named Asaph. And you know what? He's asking that question. If God is so good, why am I so unsatisfied? And he's also asking the question, why are the wrong people winning in life? God, it just doesn't seem right. I wanna give you just a little background on Asaph. Who is this guy that wrote Psalm 73? He was a Levite, he was a priest. He served in the temple for David. And what he did was he was a worship leader, a song leader. It was his job to help people as they came into the sanctuary, they sang and they put their focus up on God. He was like an Old Testament Brandon. That's who Asaph was. But you know what else is true about Asaph? He wrote part of the Bible, about a dozen Psalms written by Asaph. Was Asaph unspiritual? Let me just say this. If you're grading people on their spirituality, if you've written part of the Bible, that looks really good on a resume for being spiritual. I mean, his Psalms made the top 150 of all time in the nation of Israel. But he's asking the question, if God is so good, why am I so unsatisfied? And this is a guy that knew what he was talking about. He knew God, he knew what God was like, but he was still asking those questions so we can ask them too. This is how Asaph approached this problem, Psalm 73, starting in verse one. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. When I read verse one, I kind of see verse one as like the thesis statement from Asaph. This is like the, the foundation idea that he's building his argument from. And this is what he believes to be true. God is good. So if, if I'm good, if I'm pure in heart, not doesn't mean that I'm without sin, but if I'm good, God will do good things for me. And the outflow of that in life is I will be satisfied. If God is good and I'm good, then God should do good things for me and then I would be satisfied. But he finds himself in this place where that's not true. He is not satisfied. Why? What is eating at Asaph on the inside? And this is what's eating at him. The wrong people in life are winning. It's not just about what I'm getting, but the wrong people in life seem to be winning. This is how he says it, continuing in verse two. He says, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I'd nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He looked at what was going on in the lives of other people and he was envious. But it's not just any other people. He calls these people arrogant. The arrogant are the ones that are winning. They're the ones that think they're better than everybody else. They think they're smarter than everybody else. 
They don't care about other people. They just care about themselves. These are the people that are winning. Asaph calls them arrogant. Let's just just step back for just a second and kind of analyze what's going on inside of Asaph's life. As he's sitting there calling other people arrogant, we've got to at least acknowledge there's a little pot and kettle thing going on here. Because as he's calling them arrogant and saying, what they're getting in life, God, they don't deserve. There's inequities out there. He himself is being arrogant. Not necessarily arrogant toward other people, but he's being arrogant toward God. Because what is he saying to God? He's saying, God, there's inequities out there. And God, if I was in charge, I would make sure that the right people are winning. God, you're not doing your job, you need to step up your game. God, you need to do what is right. He's questioning. He's questioning God's judgment and he's questioning God's goodness. And that's what we do when we envy other people around us. And here's a penetrating question that I was wrestling with in my own life this week as I was reflecting on Asaph. When I look out at other people's lives and I'm envious, would I be just as envious of the inequities if I was the one that was winning? If I was the one that was getting ahead, would I be just as outraged about the inequities in the world if that were the case? Well, here's what happens with Asaph. He's starting to look at all these people that are winning and he describes what they're like. This is who are the people that are winning and in his mind don't deserve to win. The next several verses from verse four to 12, Asaph describes them. I'm not gonna read those, but I'm just gonna paraphrase those for you. Here's what Asaph says. God, these are the people that are winning. You know who's winning, God? It's beautiful people. All the pretty people. They're the ones that seem to be winning in life. God, you know who wins? You know who's winning? It's the connected people. It's the powerful people. They're the ones that are getting ahead. They're the ones whose lives are up and to the right. God, it's the healthy people. Everything's okay with them. It's the wealthy people. It's the people that have stuff. It's the people with the right clothes, the right body, the right cars, the right home, the right vacation. God, they're the ones that are winning. And it's not fair. And you know what else is true of these people, God? They don't give a rip about you. I care about you. I'm trying to follow you. I'm working hard to obey you. They don't care at all. And they're the ones that are winning. They don't love you. And you know what else is true about some of these people? Asaph says, God, they mock you. Not only do they not love you, they actually mock you. And yet you still let them win. They're the people that don't care about others. They just care about themselves. And Asaph's looking at this inequity and he's just saying, why in the world? How can this be? And then he says, you know who's not winning, God? You know who's not winning? This guy, me. And so we get to this place where Asaph, in his heart and his soul, he's screaming out this question. God, if you're so good, why am I so unsatisfied on the inside? Why are the wrong people winning? And he gets to the end of his rope and he just cries out in despair. He's ready to just toss it all in. I'm done with this whole God thing. I'm done trying to follow you. Verse 13, he continues. 
He says, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. What's Asaph saying? He's like, God, I've wasted my time. I tried to go all in with you, tried to push my chips to the middle of the table. It didn't work out for me. It's not worth it. In my mind, Asaph was probably the person who coined that phrase, nice guys finish last. I tried and I tried, but I didn't find satisfaction. God, I give up. But you know when Asaph gets there, friends, we've got to realize that on some level, he tips his hand a little bit. He tells us that his obedience, his desire to be good, it was never about pleasing God. His obedience, his desire to be good was cleverly masked as his desire to want to see God please him, do things for him. It wasn't about pleasing God. It was about God, how do I get you to please me? And Asaph gets to this point where he's throwing in the towel and he just realizes, my heart is sick. There's something wrong inside. This isn't right. He knows that he needs medicine for his heart. He knows that he needs medicine for his soul. So you know what he does? He goes to work. He just simply goes to work. Gets on his work boots, puts on his robes, grabs his guitar, grabs his amp. He's heading to the sanctuary. He's gonna go do what Asaph does. This is my job. I'm the worship leader for Israel. But this isn't just a normal worship experience. It's a game changer for Asaph. This is what the text says. When, he, when I tried to understand all this, meaning trying to understand all this inequity, why are the wrong people winning? He said, it troubled me deeply, deep in my heart. I knew my heart was sick. And then here's the turn in the psalm. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Now the sanctuary, friends, it was just simply the place where God's presence was. Now Asaph, he'd been there, done that, done this a hundred times leading worship for Israel, but something different happened. God's presence showed up in a unique way for Asaph that jolted him back in to reality. Suddenly this fixation with the things that were going on in the horizontal of life suddenly became a fixation on things that are happening in the vertical of life. God meets him in a special way and gives him medicine for his soul. What was the medicine that God gave him? God gave him the medicine of God's perspective. He gave him the medicine of his presence and he gave him the medicine of his praise. And that's what changed everything for Asaph. This is how the Psalm continues. As the Lord breaks in in his life, this is what God gives him. He starts out by giving him perspective. He says, then I understood their final destiny. In verse 17, he enters the sanctuary and then he says, then I understood their final destiny. And there he's talking about those arrogant people that he'd been so envious of. Suddenly I began to see them in light of their ultimate destiny. 
And here's what he says. He says, surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Here's the picture of what I think was happening with Asaph. He was looking at life, but he was looking at life through a straw. Now, you can, you, I can see your faces out there. If I move it around, I can see. I can see little pieces of life. But you know what? I don't see the big picture. I just see little bits of the here and now. Here's what God did for Asaph. He took the straw away and he allowed Asaph to see the bigger picture. And he's saying, don't see your life just in the here and now. That's like looking through a straw. He said, you've got to see your life in light of eternity. And so suddenly, Asaph, there's this transition that takes place. He's in the sanctuary and suddenly he's raised up and he sees things from a completely different perspective. In my mind's eye, I think this is what happened to Asaph. picture that started out as just the top of the sanctuary right here suddenly goes out and out and out the perspective changes the perspective gets bigger doesn't that make you seem just really small things just seem really small that's the picture of what happened with Asa God took him to a place to see the bigger picture see your life Asaph in light of eternity not just the here and now. Don't look through a straw. And here's what Asaph concluded. You know the people that are winning? The rich, the powerful, the pretty, all of those people without God, their world is headed toward an eternity of poverty. But then he realized and understood my life, which as I'm, I'm looking through the straw, I feel like this is a life of poverty, frustration, affliction, when I look at that in light of eternity, in light of who God is and what it is that he's done for me and what he's prepared for me, with God, I am the wealthy one. I'm the one to be envied. I'm the one that have the riches. God just says, Asaph, let me take the straw away from you. And he says to us, friends, when you're looking around at people around you and you're jealous, you want their life? Look at the big picture. Look at the big picture of who God is and what it is that he's doing in your life. But you know what I love? With Asaph, it wasn't just that God wanted him to understand eternity, that big picture. He wanted Asaph to understand, you've got me now. 
So it wasn't just about giving him perspective. It was about reminding him of his presence. God's presence with him moment by moment, day by day. And this is how Asaph describes what he started to experience. What he started to realize was actually true. And just listen to the intimate language that Asaph uses here. Psalm 73, starting in verse 23, he says, Yet I am always with you. Even in the big picture, God, I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. Don't you just get that picture of a father holding the hand of a little boy walking through life? That's the picture that God wants him to have. Asaph, there's not a step that you're gonna take that I'm not gonna take with you. Asaph, there's not a breath that you're gonna breathe that I'm not gonna be with you. There's not a tear, there's not a smile that I'm not gonna be with you. I've got you by my right hand. And Asaph realizes, God, you guide me with your counsel. It's not just that you're there, but God, you're there to guide me. And afterward, you will take me to glory. There is an eternity. There is a heaven. There is a hope. But it's not just the by and by. It's the now. God wants us to experience him now. Guide us now. But Asaph didn't just get the perspective of God. He didn't just get an understanding of the presence of God. He also got an understanding of what happens in our life with the praise of God. Now here's what I imagine to be true. As God revealed this to Asaph, this idea of praise, this idea of speaking out and singing about who God is and what he's like, how that changes us on the inside. I feel like something in Asaph was like, ah, I knew that. I knew, why would he know that? That was his job. That's what he did as his vocation. He led people in worship. He led people in praise. His job was to remind people, this is what God's like. This is what God has done for us. But Asaph needed to take his own medicine, that medicine of praise. And here's what the scripture says as he responded to God in praise. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And the earth has nothing I desire besides you. I don't care who's got what. I don't care who's winning. He's saying, God, in you, I have everything. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength and my portion forever. When he says portion, that word means inheritance. This is my security for the future. He's saying, God, you are that. I'm putting everything on you. As he starts to think about who God is, it moves him to say, God, I'm responding with everything to you. You are my only security. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. He's my refuge. I stand under his canopy, his protection. He's my refuge. And as a result of that, I will tell of all of your deeds. I'm gonna tell the world, God, who you are and what you're like. I'm gonna lead people in powerful worship because we're being reminded of who you are and what it is that you've done for us.
the world that Asaph lived in, friends, it's the same world that we live in. There's everything in us that wants us to look around at the people around us. Who's winning? Am I winning? What do I need to do to be winning? Why are the wrong people winning? But I wanna share something with you. The greatest hope that we have in this world is that in God's kingdom, in the end, the wrong people win. Yeah, I said that right. In God's kingdom, the wrong people are going to win. But the question is, who, who are the wrong people? Who are the wrong people? You know who the wrong people are? The wrong people are me. Bad English, but really true. The wrong people are you. See, when we come to that place, when we realize we are the wrong people, that we actually realize the magnitude of what it is that God has done for us. Because you know what? There was actually only one person who was the right person, who deserved the goodness of God more than any other person. And that was Jesus himself. One person lived the life that we should have lived He's the only one, friends, that deserved to win. But yet, you know what? The one that, was deserved, that deserved to win was the one who lost everything, who gave up everything. So the people that didn't deserve to win could ultimately be the winners in the end. This is how the prophet Isaiah explained the magnitude of what Jesus did made those who didn't deserve to win to be the winners. In Isaiah chapter 53, it says this, speaking of the future Messiah, it says, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Not because of anything that he had done or deserved, but that's what he did. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, the punishment that allowed us to be the ones to win, that allowed us to be the ones to be satisfied, that punishment was on him. He took that punishment and by his wounds, we are healed. By his wounds, friends, we're healed. We're able to be satisfied. Friends, Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be in a world where the wrong people are winning. That's the world that he walked into. It's the world that he came to save. But what did he do? The good news of the gospel is that Jesus made the way, friends. He made the way for the wrong people to win. And that's me and that's you. So what do we do when we're dissatisfied, when we're looking around at the world around us and we think all the wrong people are winning and I'm so dissatisfied? What is it that God invites us to do? Just like Asaph, he said, you gotta have my perspective. You gotta see the big picture. Put the straw down, step back. Look at your life in light of the big picture. You're wealthy, you're incredibly wealthy. 
But he also says, you gotta remember my presence. It's not just about the future. It's not just what what I'm gonna do for you one day. I'm with you now. I hold you by your right hand. Walk with me. Grab my hand and walk with me. Is what he says. He says, walk with me. And if you want medicine for your soul, praise me. Thank me. Speak truth about who I am. Sing those things out because it changes how we think. You've probably experienced that. You can walk into the sanctuary like this, having the worst day, lots of things going wrong in life. Just had a horrible interaction with your spouse right in the parking lot before you came in. Been there, done that. You walk in here and you're thinking, the last thing I want right now is to praise God and think about him. But you start to sing. You start to remind yourself who God is, what he's like, what it is that he's done for me, and things start to change on the inside. And friends, it doesn't have to happen in a sanctuary. It can happen in a car. It can happen in a living room. It can happen anywhere, but we change on the inside. Asaph wrestled with this question. If God is so good, why am I so unsatisfied? But you know what? Asaph got his answer. Asaph got his answer. And it was, God, you are enough. My future with you, my present with you, my praise of you, God, you are enough. God, actually, you're more than enough. I want to just ask you to set your things aside. I just want to ask you to go to prayer before God and just ask him if there's anything that he would want to say to you. Change your perspective. Remind you of his presence. Move your heart toward praise. Whatever it is that God might want to do in your life this morning. still with our heads bowed and our eyes closed and we're still talking with God I just wonder if there might be some in this audience today that you've never actually moved into that kind of a relationship with God you've never reached out and grabbed a hold of his hand you never grabbed a hold of the way that he's made a way for us to have that kind of a relationship with him If you'd want to do that today, I want to do something very simple. I just want to lead you in a very simple prayer. And by this, you'd be saying, God, I want to reach out and grab a hold of you. And this prayer goes something like this. God, I want to reach out and respond to your hand of relationship that you've extended to me today. God, thank you that you're the kind of God that takes the people that don't deserve to win and you make us winners not because of what we've done but because of what you done you've done because of your goodness to us 
Jesus, thank you that you died on the cross in my place to pay the penalty for my sin, to pay that death penalty, to pay that separation penalty, to pay that abandoned abandonment penalty that I deserve. Thank you for taking my sin upon yourself and giving me your righteousness. I turn from my sin today and I respond to you in faith. I open the door of my life and I invite you to be my Lord and I invite you to be my Savior. I give you control of my life today and I make you my King. I belong to you and I ask you to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. If you're here today and you prayed that prayer, what we want to do is just give you an opportunity to plant a stake in the ground and just acknowledge to at least one other person that I've done that. And the way we do that around here is we just want to ask you if you just slip up your hand and make eye contact with me and then you can put your hand right back down. We won't do anything to embarrass you, but you can do that now. See that hand right there and in the back over there, I see that hand and right there in the aisle. See you right there in this aisle as well. See that hand. Is there anybody else? I don't want to miss you. Just catch my eye and right there in the middle. See you as well. And over here and over here. See that hand. God, we are so grateful that you're the kind of God that reaches down and grabs our hand. And you make us the winners, not because of what we've done, but because of what you've done. God, I pray for me, I pray for my friends, that as we look at the world around us and we can be tempted to be overcome with jealousy, envy, God, that we would have your perspective on our life, that we would remember your presence with us and that our hearts would be moved to praise, that we would just say, thank you, Thank you, God, for who you are and what you've done. God, would you do that in us? Jesus, it's in your powerful and risen name that we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this time has allowed you to dig out more of who God has made you to be. If you made some kind of spiritual decision today and are interested in what's next, we'd love to connect with you. For more information or to get in touch, please visit journeyweb.net. If you're interested in supporting our ministry, you can give online at journeyweb.net slash give. Thanks.